listening to Humanize Me with Bart Campolo. Hey, everybody. Welcome back. I Welcome for the first time. Welcome, whatever. I'm glad you're here. I'm excited to share this conversation that I'm going to share with you in a few minutes. And, uh, but, but, you know, before I get there, I feel like, I don't know, you, we should catch up a little bit, you know, because I've been distracted these last few weeks. I've had some family drama. Just suffice to say, it's been, it's been a rough two and a half weeks, but, but I'm okay. Don't worry, because I have this remarkable I think sort of rare ability to compartmentalize in the sense that, how shall I say? Like when I'm with somebody who's in pain, I am with them in their pain. Like I feel that pain and, and I hurt with people and I'm, and I'm, I'm present and I'm, I'm engaged. But then like when I get in the car to go back away, I like, I have, I shut it off. And like I start thinking about dinner and by the time I get home, I'm checking up on the Tour de France or I'm talking to Marty about the garden and, and, and I, I recharge and stuff. And then when I go back to be with them again, I'm once again fully engaged. But I think, I think it's a good thing. I mean, maybe it's a weird thing. I don't know. I know everybody can't do it. Um, but I can. And for that reason... Although there are problems swirling around me in this life, right now I'm talking to you and I'm interested in what's happening with you. Speaking of which, like, okay, so that's my life. What about you? How are you doing? What's, what's happening? Did you do that thing that you said you were going to do or that you thought you were going to do after the last time we were together? Because, you know, that's, that's how these podcast things work. I, I mean, I know it doesn't always work that way, but, like, you're, we're in this together. Like, I, I'm talking to all these people, but, like, I'm talking on behalf of us and we get to all listen to those people and sometimes they inspire us or they make us think or they challenge something. And I don't know about you, but a lot of times I come away from a, one of these podcast type conversations and I think I, I need to email that guy or I need to, I need to share this quote with, my, with this person in my life or I should go over to that, guy, that guy's house and, and help him with the thing or you know what? I am not going to let that bother me anymore. The next time I think this thought, I'm going to respond to it with this kind of internal dialogue. And I make, I make resolutions based on these conversations. I'm inspired to do something or I want to change something. You must be the same way. I mean, not, not every time, but, but think about like the last few times you've listened to the podcast. There's probably something where you went like, I thought about that and I was going to do this thing. And I guess my question is, did you do it? And how did it go? And did she respond? And did it help? I mean, because what, what, otherwise, what's the point? What's the point of all these podcasts and newspaper articles and internet platforms and all this stuff? If, the, if, if all this information that we're taking in doesn't in some way occasionally challenge us to make a change for the better. Or to step away from a, an idea that was hurting us, you know? Like, if it doesn't make a difference in the way that we live, what's the point? So, uh, you know, I'm curious. How's it working out? How's this podcast working for you? I hope good. Okay, so on that note, 
I really am actually excited to share this conversation with my friend, Andy Norman. And he actually is an old friend of mine. Years ago, I went out to Pittsburgh to speak to a bunch of college students at Carnegie Mellon University, and their faculty advisor was a professor named Andy Norman. And he was kind of teaching uh, some weird amalgamation of philosophy and and uh, psychology and some other stuff. And uh, I, I ended up staying overnight at his house. And he and his wife are those kind of people that just stay in their house and they make you feel like you're their, you're their old college roommate or something. And we just stayed up late talking and eating and chatting. And by the time I left the next morning, I thought, these are, these are my pals. And sure enough, you know, a couple of years later, Andy's, when we were there that night, Andy was telling me about this thing he was working on, this book he was working on about something called cognitive immunology. And the idea, the thing, the thing he was wrestling around with, like, how do we protect ourselves from bad ideas? And this was, you know, years ago, but the problem has only gotten worse. You know, all these viruses are out there and propaganda is out there and, you know, bad thinking and political polarization. And then he was like, look, how do we know what's true or what's not true? How do we decide what ideas to take in? And, uh, Sure enough, a few years later, he sent me a manuscript for a book. And I looked at it. I read the manuscript. I sent him back even some notes. He called me back. We had some arguments. I think I got him thinking a little bit of a direction. Anyway, he just sent me the real book, like the done book. And I really like it. It's called Mental Immunity, Infectious Ideas, Mind Parasites, and the Search for a Better Way to Think. Now, that's kind of inspiring, just the title, right? The Search for a Better Way to Think. Um, and, like, I thought it was a good book. So did Joe Rogan. So Joe Rogan has Andy on his show, which, you know, I mean, in the realm of podcasts, I mean, there are two or three podcasts you want to be on. Humanize Me, perhaps, Making Sense with Sam Harris, and The Joe Rogan Experience. And uh, at this stage in the game, Andy, I think you're two for three. Joe Rogan loved him, um, which <laughs> I don't know what that means, uh, except that it, it, it raises Andy's cool factor quite a bit. Um, so he's still teaching at Carnegie Mellon. He runs something called the Cognitive Immunology Research Collaborative. Um, and, and, and I think you're going to find that he is not a stuffy academic but rather that he is a fellow, he's a fellow whatever we are. He's a fellow humanizer. He's a fellow trying to figure out how to make the most of this life. And in his case, he's, uh, he's on to something. And I'm excited to, for, you to, for you to get on to it too. So without any further ado, this is me and Andy Norman talking. I don't know if this will be a perfect summary and correct me if it's not, but to me, like this is a book about how people can protect themselves against the kinds of bad ideas mm -hmm. that seem to be surrounding us these days. And that more and more commonly, it seems like cause some of us to do terribly destructive things. That's a perfect summary. 
How good? I, I, I love it. Yes. So, so, so when I think about a book like that, this is not you know, like a memoir. If somebody's just like, ah, you know, I, I, I was in the music industry for 40 years and I decided to like write my memoir. And like, <laughs> and like they're just drawing on their, their lived experience. This is clearly yeah. a book that required a lot of research and careful thinking. Yeah, that's right. Almost 30, 35 years of hard intellectual labor <laughs> in the salt mines of philosophy. I and mean, would you say this is the book that is the summary of the research and, and, and the thinking that you've done so far? Yeah, this was kind of a major bucket list thing yeah. for me. Um, the, some of these ideas started coming to me you know, back in the late 80s, early 90s, and I've been sort of slowly piecing together a worldview that lets us better understand how viral nonsense can just mess with us all. So, so this is what's interesting to me or strange to me is because like you published the book in 2020. I know I should have published it 10 years ago before, before things got totally out of hand. Well, but in, in terms of helping humanity, <laughs> this would have been a really helpful book for you to have written and say, I don't know, 2016. Um, <laughs> well, well, Yes. And what, what one of my friends said, uh, you know, said a few years ago, hurry up and publish the damn book, Andy, you know, b before our society goes all it's getting rough out the there. Hand basket. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, um, on some level, this is in terms of being helpful. You're right. Like the sooner, the better in terms of being timely, in terms of what people are thinking about. I don't know that there's ever been a time where people are thinking about viruses. Good. Or bad thinking, disinformation, like, et cetera. It's, it's like, this is the moment. So in terms of marketing, it feels like a really good move. You know, I'm feeling kind of fortunate as far as in that regard, right? Um, people are saying it's the right idea at the right time. And I'm sort of gratified that people feel that way. Uh, I kind of feel that way. But, and, you know, if it helps us uh, dig our way out of this rabbit hole where we've dug for ourselves, then, uh, then yeah. But the reality is, is that this is, you know, this isn't a book that you were, you looked around, you saw Trump get elected, you saw some stuff going on on Fox News, and you're like, I should, I'm going to think this through and come up with a book. You've been thinking about these ideas for 30 some odd years. And I guess yeah. what I'm wondering is, is was there a particular incident or conversation or, or, or experience in your life 30 years ago? Mm -hmm. that got you started down this idea of let me think about bad ideas and how they and how they come to infect us yeah so um probably a couple of different steps along the way but one of the incidents so in in college right i'm sitting around one of those late night bowl sessions in the dormitory lounge and uh you know that the people used to have before there were cell phones and before COVID came along. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Yeah, ex exactly. You know, we were solving all the world's problems in, uh, through deep philosophical conversation. And, you know, I was kvetching about our species, sorry, lack of wisdom. And my friend turned to me and said, Andy, why don't you do something about it? And I'm like, what? You want, you want me to, like, raise humanity's overall level of wisdom? And he's like, yeah, quit, quit complaining and do something about it. So within a few weeks, I declared my major. As, philosophy, as a philosophy major. And I decided to devote my life to understanding what wisdom is and trying to figure out how we can acquire a little bit more of it. And I think if each of us makes a few steps in the right direction along that continuum, 
we can totally change the world. Okay. Now, if you were having that same bull session today, if you were a college yes. student and you were having that same bull session and somebody said, why don't you do something about it? Mm-hmm. Knowing what you know, what would you switch your major to? Oh, and I'd keep it in philosophy. Really? Absolutely. Well, let's see. I thought you were going to say like neuroscience or, co- you know, evolutionary anthropology or something like that. Like, you know, you know, there, I could see there's a case for that kind of thing. So this, um, my, my book heralds the arrival of a new science. I call it cognitive immunology. It's like the science of mental immunity to bad ideas. And, and there are lots of signs that this science is beginning to take root and spread through the science, scientific community. Uh, and my, my guess is it'll become a branch of, of psychology, perhaps. Mm-hmm. So maybe as a philosopher here, I'm in on the ground floor of trying to trying to found a new branch of psychology. See, but, it's, but, it's, but it's very philosophical branch of psychology. There were always these weird, these weird students when I was in college, and you'd say, what are you majoring in? And they're going like, well, I'm creating my own major. You know, there, you could do that back then. It's like, it's like you, you, you've taken that to a very serious extreme. Yes, I, yes, but I'm creating my own science. <laughs> oh man, no, it's not just me. I mean, actually, it, I, I did coin the term yeah. cognitive immunology, but it turns out the evidence that the mind has an immune system goes back sixty years, and it's increased. It's a small mountain of evidence, and uh, leading thinkers are coming to the same conclusion that mental immune systems exist, that they function more or less well to protect us against bad ideas, and that we can learn how to make these mental immune systems work better. Which leads me to a, th- a thought, because it's funny, when I was a Christian, you, did, did you, did you, you didn't grow up in any of that stuff, did you? I was a, my family joined a Quaker church for a short while, a Quaker meeting, but it was a it was very low key, as the Quakers are. Yes, that's right. <laughs> um, so yeah, you 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 didn't you didn't have an ideological. You, you weren't raised in some kind of virulent ideology like I was. Yeah, I, I it was very fortunate not having to battle my way out of a of a you know doctrinaire ideology that way. That's interesting because a lot of the people that I know that are the most focused on fighting bad ideologies mm. are people that escaped one. Yes. I, I, I find this is true as well. Many of my free thinking friends, you know, had traumatic experiences yeah, yeah. with, with, a, with one or another faith tradition. I, I was actually contacted by a, a young man from Brazil just yesterday um, who said he heard my, my Joe Rogan podcast and he said he described himself as a born again atheist who who learned a ton about the kind of mental trap that certain forms of evangelical Christianity set in his path. I mean, he spent many years actually struggling to get out of almost a cult like version of Brazilian Christianity. Um, and he just wanted to thank me for a few of the things I'd said on the Rogan podcast because to him they captured you know, what it was, what it was like. And, and he hopes that my message can spare others similar trauma. Yeah. And like some of the people that I've talked to over the years, like Anthony Magnabosco, 
has a guy yeah. you know, street epistemology and you know mm -hmm. he's he's very into this idea of like how do we root out bad ideas and yeah. um david c smalley he's like, like oh let people talk them out until they see the the inconsistencies you know so there there are lots of people that i i think like oh they'll love this book like i'll share this book with them they'll be all turned on by it um but one Thanks. of the things that came across to me as i was reading it was when you talk about immunology, mm -hmm. is this idea that ideas exist apart from the people who hold them? Mm -hmm. That they are, that they kind of have an independent life of their own, like a virus. Mm -hmm. um, and, and, and which in some ways reminded me of mindfulness, what they teach you in mindfulness, that like you yes. sit there and you're like, you observe the thought. And you, and, and you, you are not your thoughts. You are the person, you know? And, and so I found myself wondering, like, how do you tell, like in, in virology, how mm -hmm. do you, it's, it's, I think it's sort of easy to tell the virus from the host. Right. But when it comes to ideas, yes. how do you know who's the host and who, like, <laughs> exactly. Um, you're asking all the right questions. So we humans are a prideful animal and we like to think of our minds as the locus of agency in the relationship between mind and idea. So we, we tend to think of ideas as sort of this inert co uh, content and our minds as like these containers that are have active you know, or these, pro yeah, proce these processing units, we Processing. process ideas. Right. And, and we are the agents that manipulate and control ideas. And, and, it, and the relationship is never the other way around where the ideas are manipulating and controlling us. Well, it turns out that's a very simplistic conceit. And the phenomenon of viral memes just demonstrates that ideas can take on a life of their own. And it's also just palpably obvious in this age of QAnon that ideas can hijack minds and turn them into something uh, that that don't even serve their own best interests. I was thinking you used you used a, an illustration uh, where you said a suicide bomber. Yeah. By definition, the idea that motivates a suicide bomber doesn't benefit that individual. Right. In fact, the, the particular instantiation of that idea in the mind of the suicide bomber obliterates itself. Right. But, but, the idea, right, the so idea you would think, as encoded in one brain gets, gets destroyed. So you would think that's the it, end of the idea because like it was in this mind, the mind is blown apart, no, the no. idea is gone. And, and yet when it inspires other people to... Uh, be copycat suicide bombers, the idea lives on and proliferates in ways that harm their human hosts, not, not just the immediate hosts, but other people as well. So it's good. So suicide bombing is in a sense, it's bad for the host, but it's good yes. for the idea. Exactly. And many of the most virulent or infectious ideas in the world have precisely this property, right? They, they thrive at our expense. And until we understand this phenomenon and learn to regulate the flow of, of harmful ideas, I, I know the word regulate makes many people worry about. No, police, no, no. Right? You're just making me laugh because you're telling the story of my life. Like the idea of yeah. it's good for the idea, but bad for the host. That's, yeah. that's the story of my entire career as an evangelical <laughs> Christian <laughs> is that it was bad for me. Like it, it, 
I mean, it did. There were good things that happened in that context. But like when I think sure. about like the things it kept me from doing, the the, the guilt that it laid upon me, like it yeah. wasn't necessarily a freeing or a, 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 a joyful, you know, joyride for me. But but I was great for the idea. I spread it everywhere. And and so here's one thing to know about my book. So I definitely have religions in mind, but I don't treat them as clear, unproblematic examples of ideas that thrive at our expense. I'm going to leave that judgment up to the individual reader. What I do say is that, look, if we can take, uh, we, we can take an unbiased view of, we, we can inquire together into the characteristics of responsible believing or the, or the objective qualities of good ideas and try to figure out in some objective or scientific way what makes an idea a bad idea. Yeah, yeah. And if we can arrive at a shared understanding of that together, then we apply it across the board um, to political ideologies, to, to economic ideologies, and also to to religious um, modes of belief system. And then we see where the chips fall where they may. I don't have an anti-religious ax to grind here. What I do have is a way to approach a very deep philosophical issue, which is, you know, what does really responsible believing look like? Yeah. And I, and, and I don't, I don't want to get ahead of, I don't want to get ahead of myself here because I read through to the end and, and there's this place in the end where you're sort of like, I think if we really understand what characterizes good and bad ideas, if we think about this carefully, we're going to find that religions sort of approach, they measure good ideas by their end, like their, their effect. Their, their effect. And then yes. there are other, like sort of scientific thinkers that measure them by like, like sort of downstream. Like if what happens exactly. downstream is good, it's a good idea. And you got it. And, and, and scientists are like, it's about what happens upstream. Like, are we dealing with tr evidence that is tr exactly. accurate? And then exactly. what happens downstream? Like, that's just, Hey, okay. dude, you're stuck with it. Like that's just a side effect. Yeah. Of, like the, the, true believing or whatever. Yeah. And so, and so I want to get, we'll get to that. Cause like, I think it's interesting that for somebody who is what the chairman of humanistic studies at Carnegie Mellon director of the humanism initiative. Okay. <laughs> but you know, that, that you, that, that in, that in this book about ideas and ideologies, you make some room for faith at the end mm -hmm. as like there's, mm -hmm. it contributes something to the conversation. Absolutely. And I think relig the religious traditions of the world have grasped a very powerful fact about the human mind, which is that the beliefs we entertain and accept and, and cherish have a huge impact on our psychology, sometimes and often for the better. And we need to understand that. And we need to harness that to promote human hope and human well-being. So in the book, I distinguish between good faith and bad faith and argue that when, when the concept of faith is used to excuse dogmatic and dysfunctional belief, that it's that, that's something we need to avoid, even while we we uh, cherish and promote resolute hopefulness, which is my secular word for good faith. So we'll get there. Okay, I think. All right. We'll come back to that. Sorry. But I want to get back to this idea of ideas that are apart from the people that own them. 
Yes. Um, or or, or that, 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 that work like a virus, like they, they're ho- we host an idea. Yes. And I guess mm-hmm. what I want to ask is, wh- how do you define an, in, like, if I have an idea, how do you define, like, who's I? H- how do I define myself as an individual mm. I- I- in, in the sense of, like, are some ideas part of my basic makeup and they are me and then the bad ideas are, 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 are not me? Like, Yeah. So, well, let me, I think I can answer that best by connecting it with something you were saying earlier. So the practice of meditation, right? You sit there quietly and try to clear your mind, but ideas keep intruding anyway, right? At least in, until you're very, very good at it. Um, and what you're supposed to do when that happens is you're supposed to just let the intrusive beliefs float away. And when you do that, you, you're starting, you're widening the gap between you and your ideas. You're starting to see that your ideas don't define you because you're learning how to let go of them, right? And, you know, sages going back thousands of years have said, this is a powerful way to gain a kind of autonomy from the sort of knee-jerk mental habits that tend to rule our lives. And so meditation as traditionally practiced is a very powerful tool for gaining us a kind of freedom from our from our automatic habits. But the me and, that wants to be free? Yeah. Isn't that an idea? <laughs> Perhaps. And I I that's a that question goes beyond my pay grade I'm afraid. <laughs> <laughs> um, you'd have to talk to Sam Harris or somebody about that one I think. Um <clears throat> Yeah, I mean, the question of, you know, is there a me? Is there an identity underlying, you know, the flow of... So David, the Scottish philosopher David Hume basically said, if you look very carefully for a me underlying the flow of ideas that passes through me, there's nothing left. You, you subtract out the ideas that flow through you and, and, you're, and, and the me disappears. So he was saying something similar to what what uh, Sam Harris says these days. Maybe that's true. Um, What I do know based on my research is that when we identify with our beliefs, we become hypersensitive to criticisms of those beliefs. And I say that the way to understand this is as the mind's immune system uh, going on high alert and attacking new information or questions that threaten your your identity. Mm -hmm. And I argue that that's a, that's a trap. We should avoid hitching our identities to certain beliefs because when we do, we become closed-minded about certain things. So what should we hitch them to? Hitch our identity to? The idea of honest inquiry is my go-to alternative. Probably not the only good option, but- That's, I, the, one, me, that's the one idea that you don't question. Huh. I mean, because every religion has one. It's not that I'm not willing to question it. Um, so in the book, I, I talk about how we can rigorously challenge certain core beliefs. And as long as they continue to withstand questioning, it's okay to stay with them. But I should never close my mind to the possibility that a, that a challenge or a question might come along that would destabilize my, my belief in honest inquiry. Even, even that shouldn't be treated as so sacred that I can't question well, as long as you're willing to question honest inquiry, 
I think uh, you're who could who could object? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, because honestly, that's that's when I'm around dogmatic atheists. Mm. That's what they'll tell you. It's like truth, man. Don't question it. Like 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 you can question a truth, but like the idea that truth is the ultimate value. Mm-hmm. They're like that's bottom line like it's about you have, the, you have to accept that or we can't even we can't even a have a conversation yeah I, I worry about that attitude right because that attitude itself might subvert dialogue and well, uh, and, and it's I'm also gonna, that upstream uh, thinking that says it's about is is the evidence accurate like is it true is it objectively true and it doesn't necessarily like, the implications are not the that's not a primary concern. And I'm sort of like, Hey, I'll, you know, like even in an interpersonal relationship, if lying will enable me to stand next to my father's bedside as he's dying Mm. and, and and offer him comfort, Mm -hmm. I'll lie. Love, love will trump truth for me every time. Yeah. And and I'm not suggesting that that's how everybody should think. And I hope my father's not listening to this podcast because now at, at his bedside, he'll be like, is he telling the truth? Um, but- <laughs> yeah, I don't know if I go along with every time, but but I agree that there are times when I have compromised truth yeah. for the sake of, you know, for love or for for comfort human, well, human well-being. Yeah, yeah. yeah. The truth is one, one important value among many. Uh, I do think that it's possible to reject certain values in such a way that you just make constructive dialogue impossible. Yeah, yeah. And, and that's a huge problem. So we, if we're going to dialogue constructively, you need people to buy into certain ground rules, you know, respecting each other. Um, honesty matters. You know, we, we all need to be honest the vast bulk of the time, even if there are some exceptions. And, you know, ground rules like this make the magic of dialogue possible. Well, well, let me ground, let me ask you for a simple ground, ground rule here because yeah. your book is about protecting ourselves against bad ideas. Yes. What's a bad idea? Like what's, what's your definition of a bad idea or a, a toxic ideology? Like what is right. that? Yeah. So let me start simple and we can sort of, I think, build out together a, a shared concept of bad idea. Okay. So, so there are a whole bunch of things, pretty much every well-meaning person knows about bad ideas. So ideas have properties and some of those properties are logical. Some of them are causal, causal in the sense that if you believe them or accept them, they start to change your behavior in, in predictable ways. Um, so we can look, actually look at these properties of ideas and tally them up, the good, the good ones and the bad, the good making properties and the bad making properties. So pretty much every, honest inquirer understands the truth is a good quality, all else being equal. Mm -hmm. Falsehood is a bad quality, all else being equal. Being well-evidenced is a good quality. Being poorly evidenced is a bad quality. Being useful is a good quality. Being counterproductive or harmful is a bad quality. Okay, but wait, when you say useful, you're going to have to define that word because I go like, Useful for who? Useful for who? <laughs> useful for what? Like, I, I have an idea that's really useful if I want to exterminate all, all, all the Hutus in Rwanda. 
Right. Yeah. And so by useful, I mean uh, useful for promoting human, shared human well-being. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's a good clarification. Um, so, and look, and we all know that there are some ideas that promote one person's well-being at the expense of others. Right. And I argue that any, any fair-minded inquirer will classify those beliefs as distinctly problematic. Really? Don't you think so? It's hard for me because, um, you know, one of the things that right now there's a lot of talk about in-group and out-group thinking. Mm-hmm. And that a, like a, a heart of our problem is that we're tribal by nature. Yes. Um, I'm, I'm reading uh, Nicholas Christakis's book. Um, what's it called? Uh, the Blueprint. I've caught wind of this, but I have not yet I read it. I think you'll like it. And it's funny because okay. uh, I think uh, I, I'm thinking Pinker might have written the introduction to his book. Who also. wrote the introduction to your book? That's right. Um, so, so, and, and, but, but, but one of the things with Christakis, it's, it's a, it's a kind of a hopeful book about mm-hmm. what are the evolutionary or, or, or kind of what are the roots of our goodness that, that there's a lot mm-hmm. of stuff about like, Oh, look at the, here's where this erroneous thought comes from. And here's why we're racist this way. But he's like, there's a lot of good. There's a lot of cooperation in our species. Like we have evolved this far because we cooperate, because we love each other. Where did that come from? And he's like the evolutionary roots of our goodness. Yes. Um, but, but in the book, uh, one of the, or, or, or as I was reading it, one of the things that he was talking about was that our in-group, out-group thinking, that tribal thinking, mm-hmm. he's like, there's something profoundly good about it. You know, it, it, if you extend, it, it, if it extends, we extend it farther. There's, there's a sense in which we as a, as a species. Right. And, and one of the things that he, he mentions that I thought of was family. Like the mm. question is, do I privilege my children over everybody else's children? And the answer mm-hmm. is, I absolutely do. And we all do, right? No, we, I wish we all did. Um, sometimes you're at a playground and you're like, wow, that parent does not privilege their kid enough. They're not, they're not focused uh, enough uh, on their kid. All right. Um, all right. Fair enough. But, but I, I mean, I think every parent, well, almost every parent invests more in their own kid than they right. do in, in, uh, you know, anonymous kids on the other side of the globe. And what's funny is Andy, when I see another parent privilege their kid over mine, mm. I'm comforted. I go like, hmm. good, good. Because like you would think like, well, if you privilege your kid, you want everybody to privilege your kid. I go like, no, no, no. I want that guy to privilege his kids because number one, it lets me know I don't need to worry as much about his kids. They're not my responsibility. Hmm. I'm hmm. free to focus on my kids because he's focusing on his or she's focusing on hers. Yes. Uh, but the other thing is, is that I go, oh, he's a human being. Oh, I, I, I trust him. Like if he doesn't privilege his kid, I go like, is he a psychopath? Is he mm. dangerous? What's he what, like? Like that's we so, un- that and- yeah, it's so unnatural that it freaks me out. I hear you. Yeah. Okay. So boy, well, you're raising a, some deep philosophical issues here. And I love it. Well, I'm, um, I'm just thinking like, is the in-group <laughs> out-group thing like on some level that, you know, so the idea that 
I don't, an idea is bad if it privileges one person over another. I go like, my idea of family privileges one set of kids over another set of kids, but I'm cool with it. Yeah. So I can't say anything like, you know, no favoritism towards anyone ever. That's not one of my values. I I, I understand that there are. I can throw a birthday party for my kid. It's okay with you. Without having to throw one for, you know, an anonymous starving child in Bhutan <laughs> alongside it. I hear yes. I'm not laughing um, at anonymous starving children, but I am laughing because sometimes I, I, I'm around people that are like, we should never throw a birthday party unless there's unless, <laughs> unless everyone can have one. Yeah, that, that, we, we, our species would have a heck of a time living up to that uh, moral right standard, on. and I'm not sure it would work out well for us. Um, no, I mean, we're... We're tribal animals, and you immediately point to some of the ways in which our inherent tribalism or, or kin favoritism is probably a good thing. But we all know that there are many, many examples of tribalism that end up being hugely harmful, right? Um, the Nazis, right. Third Reich, the, um, the tribalism we're seeing in American conservatism right now. Right, the wars of religion, was, and on the edges of American liberalism too. Like you know, of course, of course, there's some serious like if you're not woke as we are, you don't get to play. Yes, and the, yes, it, the tribal destructive tribalism is not the unique province of the political right in America. The, there, there are some very worrisome strains of of, of almost. There's this weird, almost new orthodoxy arising, yeah. arising. I think among, it's not almost. Yeah, all right, maybe it's here. Yeah. Um, I, I mean, it's not tip, traditionally recognized as religious, but it bears some really interesting similarities with doctrinaire forms of religion, really and we need to push back against that. Even though, you know, a lot of times we're, we're going to be castigated as a result of pushing back against those viewed as more woke than or more less privileged than we are. Yeah. Um, so, I, I mean, I guess I, but what back I want to, to say- Back to what's a bad, bad idea. Yeah. 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 So look, um, it seems to me that reasonable people of all political persuasion, persuasions should be able to agree that if I indulge in an idea that makes me happy at the expense of everyone else, that's irresponsible. So if I indulge in white supremacist fantasies because it makes me feel superior and and salves my wounded ego or or gives me confidence, but I do that and it triggers tra- hateful behavior on my part that damages or kills other people, that's not okay, right? And there are many less dramatically destructive versions of that same phenomenon where you believe irresponsibly to gain the psychological benefits for you while ignoring the downstream effects for others. And surely we have to acknowledge that that's not okay. Here, there's a, in my book, I talk about a famous thought experiment, right? So a, a ship, a ship owner is worried by reports that his ship has become kind of leaky and not terribly seaworthy. But he's making a lucrative business, shipping people back and forth across the Atlantic. And so he kind of suppresses his doubts and he signs up a bunch of passengers and sends it across the ocean. And sure enough, it sinks in the middle of the ocean and all of his passengers 
die. He collects the insurance money and never and never suffers any qualms. Now, ask any reasonable person, did this guy believe, allow himself to believe irresponsibly that his ship was seaworthy? And the answer is uniformly yes. He should not have let himself believe that. And that shows us that it's possible to believe irresponsibly because our beliefs our beliefs can harm others. And until we grapple with that fact and let go of this idea that I'm entitled to my belief no matter what, we're not going to address the mind parasite problem that our species and, has. And, you know, I, I always quote Upton Sinclair who said, it's very difficult to change a man's mind about an idea when his salary depends upon him not changing it. Yes. Um, and that's that <laughs> ship owner, right? Like, it, 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 yeah. it's very hard to convince him that that ship is is not seaworthy yes. when he's making such Making great on profits it. on it being seaworthy. Which shows that the profit motive can skew our thinking in ways that harm us all, right? This is why we need a government that actually cracks down on irresponsible profiteering. Uh, people need to be held accountable for things like that. Yeah, You can't drown people with impunity. So a bad idea is one that isn't truthful, that isn't well-evidenced, that isn't useful for the common good. Yeah, we can look at all of, we can, so, so here's the thing. Um, many people assume that when you're talking about bad ideas, you mean idea I happen to disapprove of. But when I say bad idea, I, like most philosophers, I don't mean just that I have a disfavorable opinion about it. I mean that after careful examination of the idea's properties, causal and logical, I've reached a judicious or what I think of as a judicious conclusion that the idea is not serving humanity well. So ideas that don't serve humanity well or that are demonstrably counterproductive to human well-being, those ought to be classified as bad. All right. And we need to be on a – we need to do something. All right. I'm going to cut to the chase then and go, All right. okay, if that's the disease, mm -hmm. immunize me. What, Inoculate what, what, your mind. What do I have to do? Right. How do I, how do I spot them how do I, and how do I stop, mm -hmm. stop them from messing me up? Right. So the way you strengthen a body's immune system is to teach it how to spot and remove viruses or dangerous microbes. So the COVID vaccine actually teaches your body's immune system how to spot the coronavirus and eliminate it or prevent it from harming your body. Um, we can do the exact same thing with our minds. So different people uh, differ in their susceptibility to bad ideas. And you, we can actually teach people how to be on the lookout for the bad making properties of ideas so that they can spot them more readily. How, give me an example. Well, so let's suppose that you and I have different views on immigration. And, uh, but, but it's wait, wait, wait. Can I just stop you right there? Sure. Because like immigrations, I mean, I'm, I'm happy if you want to use that example, but it's just, for me, I'm that's a hard, I'm like, immigration feels like there's points on both sides. Right. That's one of the things I'm, I, that, that's one of the features of the issue that, that I want. You want to, to eliminate. use in this Okay. Example. All right. Then I'll, I'll, yeah, okay. Yeah. So there are many valid considerations that come into play on both sides when you consider immigration policy. Whose jobs is it going to affect? What about 
the the humanity of the desperate people at our border, right? Um, uh, are you really expecting me as American taxpayer to foot the bill for the, to educate the children of this immigrant? But these are all. Yeah. What if I like? What if I like the culture of my hometown, and you want to flood it with people who speak a different language and like different food, and I feel like the beautiful character of my town is going to be forever altered. And I think, I think if that's your situation, you have a right to be part of the conversation, and you have a right to draw our collective attention to that concern. Right. That that point, that consideration has has a place in the, in the conversation about immigration policy. Um, and here's the thing, right? Immigration advocates may not be well positioned to appreciate the depths of your feeling about that issue. They may not be able to appreciate how disruptive a, a big flood of immigrants might be to a, a, a local community. Um, so they can be educated, their minds can become more sensitive to your objections to open borders by listening to you talk about that. And in the same way, the advocates of, of tighter border restrictions can actually have their awareness, their consciousness raised by listening to the, to the heartrending stories of refugees on the southern border who are looking for asylum, right? Mm -hmm. The point is that in dialogues where we genuinely listen to one another, our minds become more sensitive, not just to the good making features of certain ideas, but also to the bad making features of those ideas so that we can begin to weigh them properly. Now, there are literally thousands and thousands of considerations that weigh on the immigration question, and I don't have any easy answers uh, for what that, but I do know this, that if there's a rational solution to that issue, it's going to be one that takes account of as many of the most relevant considerations as it can. Are, are you saying that there are good ideas on both sides? Yes, and valid considerations on both sides, even though they sometimes are marshaled to support a less than ideal immigration policy proposal. So, so in a sense, in this argument, part of my job if I'm on either side or if I'm undecided is to spot the things that each advocate is saying that are true, that are evidence-based, that are, would benefit all humanity. And then to spot the, other. so, so again, like help me know how to tell the difference. Right. How do I know when an idea is one or the other? Right. Well, so, it, it helps here to start with much simpler examples. So that was the you know, hugely complex and morally tangled I question that, that I, yes, you did. You tried to warn me away from it. <laughs> I appreciate it. But, but I think the example serves to just show that, you know, we can use, we can each use reasons on both sides of that issue to call attention to relevant considerations, pro and con. Mm -hmm. And both of those sets of considerations have a role to play in wise decision-making. So that's, I think, a fairly straightforward point that we should be able to agree with. Now, um, in the book, I talk about a very simple case where one reason decides the question. And it's pretty clear, it should be pretty clear to every reasonable person that that's true. So suppose you and I are in a car 
and we're headed to a destination on the other side of the river. You're at the wheel and you head towards the bridge we usually take. And I said, oh, hey, Bart, that bridge happens to be closed. There's construction on it. You're better off headed down to the 31st Street Bridge and crossing there. You don't have any reason to think I'd be lying or pushing a propagandistic message. So you go, oh, okay, Andy, you turn the wheel and you head for the 31st Street Bridge instead of the one that's actually under construction. Now, what I'm doing there is I'm giving you a reason to change direction. You're recognizing that that's very likely a reliable piece of information and you're adjusting your behavior as a result so as to produce a better outcome for both of us instead of getting stuck in traffic and being held up at a bridge that's closed. Or driving off a broken bridge into the water. Or, okay, yeah. sure. <laughs> Which And there are example, analogs to that in, yeah. in the world, right? Um, but look, when you take politics out of it, and make very simple, it, use examples from ordinary everyday life, it's easy to find examples where reasons do their job well by calling attention to relevant considerations and leading to wiser judgment. When we focus all the time on these hyper-inflammatory issues, we forget the reason functions extremely well in a wide range of cases when we don't get in their way. <laughs> the problem is that the real challenge is not to let our identity, our political identities, our religious identities, and our grievances get between us and the rational considerations that can genuinely guide us in the direction of wiser ways of living. So when the question is, I don't know, should we fund the infrastructure bill that's now before Congress, um, you can, well, that's another hugely complex one, but in principle, we can tally up the pros and the cons, come to a yeah, but, shared understanding of the better option and act on it together. But I can't because, because the reason to not go across the bridge, they, you know, he says, look, the bridge is out and we'll be caught in traffic or we'll drive into the river. Mm-hmm. And I go like, oh, okay. That sounds, that sounds plausible. So on an issue like the infrastructure bill, they go, well, you know. If we fund the infrastructure bill, most Americans will lose their jobs. Our economy will crash and everything will be terrible. Somebody will actually say that to me. And I go like, if that's true, we should not fund that bill. Right. And in principle, though, you and your conversation partner can actually dig into the evidence for and against their claim, for their claim and find out whether it's reliable. There's no reason in principle why we can't. I mean, the problem here is that we talk ourselves into a mindset where these things are in principle uh, unresolvable, and then we despair and we give up on dialogue. I'm saying don't go down that path. It's a dark, dark path. Our species has given up on reason time and time again in our history, and every time we do, it works out really badly for us. There was a thousand-year dark age that that blighted Western civilization because people got so worried that reason didn't give us easy answers that they gave up entirely on reason. So is reason is not the idea. Reason is the, is the, is a way of weighing different testing ideas, testing ideas. So any given reason draws attention to a consideration that either counts for an idea or against it. And when we take the time to actually investigate matters openly and honestly, we can draw our attention to the relevant considerations tally up the pros and the cons, 
and at least in principle, um, arrive at a better understanding and a wiser course of action. And, and this happens again and again and again, day in and day out, because my, my example of the bridge crossing is representative of the thousand and one things we do every day where reasons actually guide us in a wiser direction. We need to not forget those because we're focusing so much right now on the dysfunctional politics and the inability of our Congress people to actually dialogue in anything like a fruitful fashion that we're giving up on the whole ideal of, of uh, rational dialogue. And we do that at our peril. It's, it's, things are going to go very hard for our species. And, 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 and this is where I guess I'm, I'm the bridge example. Mm-hmm. You and I are in the car. Yeah. And we, our interests are aligned. We want to get to the other side of the river. Good. In the conversation about infrastructure or about healthcare or about immigration, the two people having the conversation, number one is their, their interests are not aligned. Mm -hmm. And number two is the interests that are not aligned often have nothing to do with immigration. Or healthcare. So, like, I'm a yes. Democrat. I want to win office next election. You're a Republican. You want to win office next election. We're talking <laughs> about immigration, but like, I'll I'll take the wrong stance on immigration if it'll get me elected. Right. And so, all of a sudden, we're not. It's not two people with the same ultimate goal dealing with one issue. It's right. people with two people with two different goals, and they're working on at least two different levels. You're, ab- you're absolutely right, Bart. And the correct lo- conclusion to draw from that is reality is complicated. Politics is complicated. Um, yeah, there are going to be cases where we actually uh, fall far short of the rational ideal. But that doesn't mean we shouldn't try to nudge ourselves marginally closer. I, and to and I wasn't being ideal. defeatist. What I'm saying is, is yeah, yeah. In, this conversa- in that conversation, the more, the more complicated one, Presumably, part of my mental immunity would have to do with looking at a person giving me reasons and judging not only the quality of their reason, but like the motivation behind it. Like motives matter in this stuff, right? Yes, that's right. And and so – a staple of good media literacy training is to ask the question, well, who's pushing this information and why? What are their motives? Right. And so there are a lot of peddlers of disinformation out there right now about the election lie and, uh, you know, uh, climate change being a hoax. And there are powerful financial and political interests at stake that drive the propagation of this disinformation. There are also people who are promoting good information or truthful information, but they're using nefarious means to do that because they're like, the regular stuff won't work. So so you could be on the right side of the election lie issue, but Mm. you'll still paint a particularly horrible view of that Josh Hartnett or, or, you know, or, or which Josh Hawley. Yeah. Hawley. Yeah. Josh. That's it. Right. Josh Hartnett's an actor. Um, 
who I recently right. read about. He was in a movie with Kate Beckinsale. Um, anyway, you, you you would portray a particular, like you would highlight his fratty behavior or you would show a photograph of him from a negative angle, making him look like a mean guy. And you're like, but he really was on the wrong side. of Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, but, but like, we can't just, we can't just stick with his, his wrongness on the issue. We also have to destroy him as a human being. Right. And there's a lot of this going on, right? On all sides. And, uh, and it speaks to how deeply tribal our thinking is. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and the problem with, so in the book, I argue that when you start reasoning to win, instead of reasoning to find out, you're actually subverting your mind's immune system. Oh, that's good. Reasons aren't weapons. They're tools for guiding a collaborator's attention to a relevant consideration. And if we keep that in mind, if, if, if each and every one of us checks ourselves, uh, am I offering, am I, am I marshalling reasons in order to bludgeon somebody and make them look bad to win an argument? If you're doing that, you might gain a short-term advantage in the conversation you're having, but you're actually, uh, beginning to erode your character and your ability to spot the difference between good and bad ideas. Oh my. So like one of the keys to mental immunity is, and I know this will sound crazy, but like stop trying to win arguments. Right. It's, it's actually, uh, yeah, fair mindedness is critical to mental immunity. And if you practice the art of winning arguments at all costs, I mean, it's not that you can't um, do your best to defend something you think is true. But if you're uh, arguing to win at all costs and starting to bend the truth or being highly prejudicial in your selection of, of facts and evidence in order to win, you've already sowing the seeds of, of, of the corruption of your mind's immune system. So winning is coming up with the best answer rather than convincing everybody that my answer is the best. Yeah, instead of trying to win at somebody's expense or win out over them, um, see if you can produce a win-win um, understanding. I mean, the real goal of dialogue and conversation should be shared understanding, not the winner and the loser. And sometimes I think like shared understanding or mutual understanding, because like we may not share the same understanding. Like, okay, now I understand your interests. You understand mine better. They're still not the same interests. You're still Israeli. I'm still Palestinian. Um, right. I want this house. You want this house. Um, but it, but there's a, at least a shared understanding. Well, I, I think both kinds are important. Uh, understanding where the other guy's coming from. We all need to do our best to understand in a compassionate way where people who differ from us are coming from. And then once we've done that and given them a chance to understand where we're coming from, we also have to work out a shared understanding of, of how we proceed together given that we are co-inhabitants of a small world that have to coexist. Yeah. Right. Um, and that's even harder, but the initial step of just understanding each other in a sympathetic way is a critical step, but then we actually have to work out the even harder question of how are we going to act in concert? Yeah. The idea of share of mutual understanding, like I understand you mm -hmm. and I recognize that you're, perspective is legitimate and you understand me like, I'm like that, that's possible shared yeah. understanding 
I go like, oh, no, we're, we're not, there's no one narrative that we're going to have that we're going to both go like, yep, that's how it really is. Right. Well, and, and, and once again, you're gravitating towards one of the most difficult yeah. and tractable, right? It's my and, nature. And, <laughs> well, my, my, I, I, uh, I share your, your frustration about that. I mean, it's, it's worth reminding ourselves that there are all kinds of less charged domains yeah where people do listen to each other and learn from one another and arrive together at not just compromise positions but wiser positions because they're dialoguing in a fruitful way if we put our faith in dialogue again i think we can transform our world for the better so so is a big part of this an openness to changing your mind or having your mind changed by evidence absolutely in fact one of the biggest disruptors of the mind's ability to spot and remove bad ideas is the basically attachment to ideas and the refusal to change them in the light of new evidence. So I'm raising, I'm raising kids. I'm, I'm not actually, okay. I'm, I'm, I'm watching my children raise you're, their kids. You're empty nest. You're an empty nest. Uh, yeah. Well, and I'm a grandparent, which, wow. yeah, super excited. You can't possibly be that old. Oh my gosh. And, and like it's yeah and and don't don't get me started on the whole grandparenting thing because it's a it's 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 one of those things that everybody talks about in these crazy terms and you you think like oh shut up i'm sick of hearing it and then it happens to you and you're like i think i invented this this is amazing Um, (laughs) and it's awesome but but one of the things that you notice is 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 if okay so you're shaping a young life okay you're shaping a, a mindset and i guess what i'm wondering is is that idea that it is good to change your, it is good to your, the idea of having a changeable mind, being open mm. to, to new ideas or to better evidence mm. or however you want mm. to describe it. Mm-hmm. Do you have any suggestions of activities or ways of talking or language that you would use with a person to raise somebody who was more fair minded? Yeah. So, um, boy, that's a wonderful question. I'm, I'm, I'm asking, I'm, I'm asking the philosopher to be a practical philosopher. Like, okay, yeah, I know. you, you I want know. everybody to be my nature, yeah, right? Yeah. You're, you're asking me to change my stripes here, but I'll, I'll try. I'll, I'm asking I'll, you to humanize for you. to humanize my granddaughter. <laughs> All right, sounds like a tall order, but I'll, let me see what I can do. Um, so, imagine a kid who is, I don't know, in the high school debate team. Well, that, take it out of the debate team. So, so, so imagine a, you're a high school teacher who runs a discussion club, and one of your members is arguing very aggressively and refusing to acknowledge and that that people on the other side have any anything worthwhile to say. So they're basically arguing to win. Now, how do you how do you instruct that kid? Again, I'm taking it out of the context of sort of formal debate, which is deliberately a competitive thing that skews dialogue in all kinds of ways. But I might pull aside a kid like that and say, hey, you want the other side to hear your reasons and be persuaded, right? Yeah. Well, are you affording them the same thing, the same opportunity that you're asking them to afford you? Are you as open to their reasons? No, their reasons are terrible. Their reasons are awful. Are you kidding? 
I'm Black Lives Matter is true. And the, and these are racist. Why would I want to listen to them? Trying to get my head around the, the full, the full scenario you're, you're painting here. I mean, the, this the, is high school. Simple- this is college right now. Like people like won't listen to somebody who is espousing an idea on the other side because they're like, that idea is, is, is so evil and toxic and wrong. It should not be given a platform. Right. Um, I, I have seen signs of that, yes. But look, I, I guess I'm pointing to a, a simpler, older parenting strategy, which is how would you like it if somebody did that to you? So going back generations and generations, parents have been channeling the golden rule by with the simple question, right? How would you like it if somebody treated you that way? Mm. If you can get a kid, even this aggressive win at all costs culture warrior person to pause just long enough to realize that he's not holding himself to the same standards that he wants other people to hold them to. You can sometimes give, give them an aha moment yeah. I wonder, and begin to transform. Yeah, I wonder if even the phrase, how would you like it if somebody treated your idea that way? Like since we're Ooh. talking about ideas, not not just treated you that way, but like, how I, would I you like, like it if somebody treated your idea? Like you have this idea that black lives matter. Yeah. How would you like it if some, and, 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 and that there's a, a history of police abuse that needs to be addressed. How would you like it if somebody treated your idea the way you just treated that idea? Yeah, how would you like it if, if others shouted down your, your point, the way you're shouting down other people's yeah. points. I, I love that part. You said that really well. And I'm actually scribbling a note here. So <laughs> that, 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 that's, that's good stuff. Um, yeah, we should treat other people's ideas the same way we want them to treat ours, with respect and consideration, right? And, and maybe this brings me to a phrase in your book that I liked but didn't understand. Right. And I thought, I'm going to get him. I'm going to talk to him and he's yeah, going to explain it to me. Like, okay. like I'm, I'm like, not everybody gets to do that. Like you read a book and you're like, I don't get that. And you're like, you, not everybody's like, I could call the author. Um, I know this guy. Yeah. I yeah, feel very okay. lucky. Reasons fulcrum. Mm-hmm. You, you talked about this idea that there's this, te- like, it, well, I, I won't tell you what you talked about. You used the word reasons fulcrum. I didn't understand it. Yeah. But it's but it was appealing to me. So enlighten me. Yeah. So so it turns out reasons are like levers. So we try to we use reasons to try to like uh, pry bad ideas out of each other's minds and to shoehorn other good ideas into each other's minds. Um, but levers only work if there's a fulcrum or something for it to pivot around. And by the um, way, for you but, listening at home, and he's doing a teeter-totter with one finger on his other finger. Um, which, <laughs> thank it, you. Good so think about like a seesaw and that thing in the middle, that's the fulcrum. There we go. Good. Thank you. Uh, yeah. So it turns out that just as a teeter-totter needs a, a fulcrum, a reason needs a fulcrum. Um, and the point around which every rational consideration pivots is the idea that we should change our mind, we should yield to better reasons. So if if I want you to yield to my better reasons, I've got to be willing to yield to your better reasons. And that where that norm prevails, that, so the norm that says everybody has to yield to better reasons, that norm is the, is the norm that makes dialogue possible. 
It's the norm that makes inquiry possible. It's the norm that makes science possible. It's the norm that makes problem solve, reality-based problem solving possible. And when we defy that norm for religious or political or ideological reasons. Or personal reasons. Or personal re or financial reasons. Yeah, yeah. When we defy that norm or we begin to blow it off, brush it off for short-term selfish gain, we're actually damaging the mechanism at the very heart of our mind's capacity to filter out nonsense. The, the, we're damaging the capacity that brought us this far. That, the, that, that, made... that, that accounts for civilization. Like civilization itself is built upon this norm that I call reasons fulcrum. And when, when we celebrate and uphold and observe this norm, we progress together as a species. When we defy this norm and defile it the way our recent president did on a daily basis, we degrade ourselves, we degrade each other, and we degrade our, degrade our collective prospects. I think this norm is that essential to our collective well-being. And if we learn how to celebrate and um, honor it together, we can transform the human condition. So I got to introduce you to um, Johan Hari. Uh, I've heard his name. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've he, listened to some one of his books. Uh, he, he, he wrote uh, Chasing the Scream and he wrote yes. uh, Lost Connections, which is a book. It, the first is about addiction. The second is about depression. You had him on your yeah, show yeah, yeah, not yeah. too long ago. And, he's, yeah. and, 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 and when I had him on the show, like when we were just chatting, chit-chatting afterwards, um, the one of his, I guess he's working on three books at a time um, wow. as people, as, you know, as one does if they're not me. Um, <laughs> or me. Um, yeah, you, at least you were working on one book for a long time. Um, I'm working on you no are. book at a time. Well, but you've had your book. You've done your oh, book. Oh, stop. Um, no, but a thought book, an idea book, like it, it, writing, a, writing a story book is one thing. Writing an idea book, that's a different thing. So he, the idea that he's working on right now is writing a book about changing your mind or having your mind changed. Ooh, um, I like it. People, what are the characteristics? What are the dynamics? What is it that, in, and in a sense, the fulcrum that says we should always be open to the better idea, or, or mm. is, is that how you described it? Like that's that's perfect. Okay. Yeah, that this is all dialogue hinges on the idea that we're looking for the better idea, and that and yes. that if we find it, we will adopt it. Good. Rather than rather than trying to defeat it because it's not our idea. Beautiful. Um, in a sense, that fulcrum is an openness to changing one's mind. Yes. Which, by the way, in American politics, is the surest path to defeat. Like you, you must never admit that you were wrong about an issue thirty years ago. That well, they misunderstood me. Like, like, like the, 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 the yeah, typecast is a flip flop. Right? Yes, exactly. You're wishy washy, and I go like. You know, like in a sense, wishy-washy, I, I, you know, it's, it's a wrong way of saying it, but like, I'm a huge flip-flopper. I'm actually don't even, I wouldn't describe you that way because changing your mind when the reasons indicate you should is a virtue, not a lack of, of care. Yeah, no, no, we got it. I think we have to come up with a better term than flip-flop or, or wishy-wash right. because, and in some ways I'm just a flipper. Like, oh, I had that idea. There's a better idea. Oh, I flipped. I went to the other idea. So, so when the Nobel Prize winning economist John Maynard Keynes, he once said, 
when the facts change, I change my mind. What do you do, sir? <laughs> right? It's like, it's like, yeah, I change my mind. Yeah. And if you don't, you're the one who has a problem. Yeah. So, so in mm. some, I mean, it's funny because I feel like, I mean, reading your book, it opened up a lot of different ideas that, you know, I, I mean, I was even thinking about herd immunity. Because in your book, you're yes. like, don't become a preacher of mental immunity. Become a practicer. You're sort of like, mm -hmm. I'm not trying to like start a movement where everybody's out there screaming, you're thinking wrong. You're just like, learn to think this way. Learn to, right. you know. But, but and, and let the power of your example spread. Well, spread and I, what I was saying is like, that's the equivalent of like, vaccinate yourself, get vaccinated. Yeah. And, and yet there is this idea that until a certain percentage of our population are open to the better idea, are open, it, it, it's tough. It, it, you know, as a it society, the, the bad ideas overwhelm. You know, like, I, yeah. like you can be practicing really good ideas about climate change, but if you can't convince anybody else to do that. Um, we're together. We're yeah, all you're, we're together. all together. And so, and so I'm not trying to turn you into an evangelist. But I guess what you're saying is like the first step is to become mm -hmm. yourself somebody who is more attuned to what is and is not a good idea. Beautiful. That, that's exactly right. So what, what did they say when you got on an airplane, right? If the oxygen masks drop down, uh, right, put, put your, your own ears first. on first and then help the people around you. Um, I think the same is true for the lessons of cognitive immunology. We, we should each try to identify the ways in which we fall short of wisdom ourselves. And I, I, I don't encounter a lot of people in this world who are profoundly wise. And so we all got a lot of room to grow. So what's the, if there's one thing that you would want people to do, like you go like, you should every morning read this, or you should ask this question more often, or like if, if there's one thing that you that you would want me to do, yes, to be better in this way. What would you want can me I, to do? Uh, can I have two? You can have two. Can I? Can I two things? Okay. I, I mean, I've got at least a dozen, but uh, I'll, I'll limit myself to two here. So, one of the first things you can do is understand that doubts are the antibodies of the mind. So when your doubts, when that little voice in the back of your head says, yeah, there's something not quite right here. Um, are you sure you want to say that or think that, Andy? When that voice is trying to tell you something important, and it's actually your mind's immune system trying to say there's something to watch out for here. Learn to listen to that voice. Learn to listen to your doubts, your qualms, your reservations, and learn to express zoom in on those doubts and qualms and reservations and express what's going on with a well-formed question. If you can do that, your mind's immune system will grow, grow dramatically stronger. That's. Can I just stop you for a second on that one? Yeah, sure. Because there's something that um, I'm learning from my kids that is, is a little bit painful, but it's been really, is really tr helpful. Um, okay. So my little two-year-old granddaughter we're all close and stuff she lives right around the corner and when i'm leaving her house it's very natural for me to go hey come give poppy a hug yeah and my daughter and son are sort of like if you want to 
um, because the idea of, of a little of saying to a little girl, regardless of how you're feeling in this moment, you need to make yourself available to be hugged and kissed by this person. It's like there may be times when somebody else is saying, "Give me a kiss, give me a hug, do this, do that." And she needs to learn that if she doesn't feel comfortable or safe in this moment, mm. hugging somebody, mm. she doesn't have mm. to. I see. And, and that's she can respectfully her, decline. She can say, bye, Poppy. And that's what her parents are trying to teach her. Yeah. And you go, like, well, there's nothing re- like they know I'm safe. So just what we basically say, uh, say to kids is push through, hug that guy, even if you don't feel like it. And what they're saying is like, you listen, mm. it's okay to trust your instinct here. Like, and maybe it's, and maybe you'll even be wrong. Maybe it turns out like you'll wish you, Poppy will be halfway home and you'll be like, I wish I had a hug Tim. And it like, doesn't matter. Like if you're not feeling the hug, mm-hmm. you don't have to hug that guy. Interesting. And I just think that's really healthy. So they're actually helping her develop and pay attention to those instincts so that they can serve her better as she grows. And maybe it's a doubt or maybe it's just, I don't feel like it. But in any case, what they're saying is, is like, yeah. Listen to your impulses. Um, and I think that doubt is like an impulse. Uh, it, it, it's, it's, it's a thought that arises that sort of goes like, you know, hey, maybe I'm wrong on this. Or it's, it's like an instinctual sense of like there's something not – Malcolm Gladwell in that book uh, Blink talks about the adaptive unconsciousness. Like there's something in the pattern that's off here. There's some, right. Something doesn't feel right. And if you learn to listen to the, that – that vague sense that there's something not quite right here. A lot of times you'll start to spark, spot the bad making features of an idea or a course of action that might otherwise escape you. And, and you got to listen to other people's doubts too. Yeah. So, because sometimes they spot the ones you miss. Right, right, right. Okay. And, and vice versa. So first of all, it's doubts are the antibodies of the mind. So learn to listen to them. Learn to listen to them. But, but of course, don't always treat them as gospel. Sometimes our doubts get out of control and freak out and, and become overactive. So, so pay attention to them, give, let them express their voice and, and, you know, do due diligence on, on the, on your doubts, just as you would anything else. But, but, uh, but, but don't shut them down. You shut them down and your mind's immune system will become, you'll you'll just become a sitting duck for some propaganda. A little like in this me too movement where they're like, you know, say, believe women. And I think that the wiser heads are saying, listen carefully to women like you know like like don't dismiss out of hand the account of a woman that's a that's a really good example okay that's one that's that's my first of two uh practical things second thing is treat the challenges of others in other words when others express their doubts in a challenging form in a way that might even you know cause you to rethink something that, that means a lot to you Treat it as an opportunity, not a threat. So when we treat challenges as threats, we dismiss them out of hand and we lose the opportunity to learn from them. Yeah. yeah. So a lot of times I'm in a conversation and somebody will say something that basically says, you know, Andy didn't get it right. And Andy said something wrong. And my first instinct is to, is to hit back. Right. And I have to learn to say, all right, hang on here. You know, this person's probably actually seeing something. That I'm missing. Oh, yeah. Let, 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 let me let me hear him out. Maybe there's an opportunity for me to learn something here. And if I just listen in a with an open heart and open mind, I usually find that the person who's pushing back 
is actually saying something also worthwhile and that needs to be taken into account. And a lot of times I end up revising my initial opinion as a result of what I learned from somebody else's challenge. And I, I think we all need to learn to do that better. That's really good. Cause yeah, I mean, usually when somebody challenges us, our idea is like, how do we crush the challenger or we get defensive? Yeah. Or, or, you know, you go like the challenge is legitimate. So we go to undermine the credibility. Like, who are you to say that? Or what, 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 like you've done nothing wrong or like, you know, and, and in a sense, it's our way of deflecting attention away from, you know, like my kid says to me, Hey, you didn't do the dishes last night and you left the kitchen a mess. And I go, who are you to talk? Look at your room. Look at your car. Look at your, and, and in a sense, I'm like, that's treating it like a threat. Right. That, that's right. And, and, and when you treat challenging and surprising information as a threat, you stop learning, right? You, you have to take in challenging and threatening information to make, to build a more nuanced yeah. and, and wiser worldview. So, in fact, um, what the science of mental immunity adds to this is that um, the mind's immune system responds to information it finds threatening by trying to neutralize that threat. And a lot of times that takes the form of, you know, verbal hitting, hitting back verbally in some way. But we know that when we feel defensive, um, the mind's sympathetic nervous system is actually putting us into fight or flight mode. So, so when we feel under threat, a part of the brain that basically says, um, dude, you're under attack, fight back, um, gets really loud. And your ability to actually listen and say, let's examine things from both sides goes out the window. So there's a, there's a, that's the sympathetic nervous system puts you in flight or flight mode. And then there's a, uh, an opposite system called the parasympathetic system that basically says, calm down, dude, time to rest and reflect. Um, and you actually have to actively work at promoting the parasympathetic pushback to think judiciously. Okay. And to get good at spotting bad ideas. So that's the brain science part of this. And I, I'm not, no, I'm not an that. expert on it by any means, but we do know this about, I mean, what, what's really exciting about this new science is that we, we've known all this stuff about parasympathetic and sympathetic nervous systems and uh, bodily immune systems that attack perceived microbial threats. We've known all that for decades. What we're finding is that all of those same relationships, all of those same dynamics are played out in almost perfect replica in our minds. Threatening information mobilizes a threat response, a sympathetic attack, the intrusive information thing. And a lot of times that counterattack doesn't serve us well. It, it prevents us from, from learning. So you actually have to actively calm your own mind and say, hear it out. Let's be patient. Maybe there's something here, even if it looks wrong. Oh, it's so interesting. My wife str struggles with uh, autoimmune stuff, you know, rheumatoid arthritis and things. And so what happens is, is that something triggers the body and says there's a big threat and it sends all this inflammatory stuff that's to immobilize, right? And sometimes the, the overreaction hurts you that's more the than problem. the original threat. Exactly. Exactly. You know, the threat isn't really a big threat, but, but the, the thing that the, the over, body's overreaction the becomes the problem. Yeah. Right. And so every allergy attack you've ever had is your 
your body's immune system overreacting to, I don't know, dust or hay fever or, or a pollen or something like so that. So you have to treat, um, treat challenges of other people as opportunities. Not as threats. Not as threats. And you sort of like, sometimes they are threats, but, but you have to, you, you, you don't have to worry about strengthening your sympathetic nerve system, but you do have to, you, ha you have to actually put some proactive energy Beautiful. on the paras parasympathetic. You know, it's Trace Matt, exactly. a, a sort of an addendum to that one, it seems to me, is um, that I find in arguments when there's a real difference between when you're either attacking or taking seriously or um, ridiculing the idea mm. and when you're attacking or ridiculing the person bearing the idea. And so a lot of times I'll know an argument's going off the rails when I'm, when, when, when it goes to ad hominem attacks, like, like when people are like, you idiot, or you fascist, or you racist. Exactly. Um, yeah. Well, so philosophers have known this for a long time. The moment a, a discussion, the participants in a discussion start attacking each other's characters rather than assessing each other's ideas, I think things go downhill fast. And and so logicians actually, actually classify ad hominem arguments that attack the person as a fallacy. It, it's actually a, an, an illogical and counterproductive way to treat other people in conversation. So re always remember that you and your ideas are different things. And if somebody's challenging your ideas, that, that doesn't mean they're, they're threatening you as a person. And they and their ideas are different things. And even if they're a reprehensible person, it doesn't mean that that idea isn't worthy of your consideration. And vice versa. A lot of times, just because they're, you find their idea reprehensible doesn't mean they're a reprehensible human being. It just might, might mean that they're, right. they're, they've been sitting too long in an echo chamber. And uh, again, uh, save me from myself when I was a young man or save other people from me when I was a young man. Um, just because that person is lovely and charming and really cares about you and plays a guitar in a re and, 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 and really knows how to run a fun meeting doesn't mean the stuff he's telling you has any evidentiary true. basis or actually will, <laughs> will improve your life. I hear you yeah, on this. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I gotta tell you, I, I had a, 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 a guy who wanted to come to me for some post Christian consulting. He's like, I'm struggling to put my life back together on the other side of this thing. And mm. he, somebody recommended me to him. So he listened to a couple of podcasts and he wrote me a letter and he said, I think I want to meet with you. Oh no, actually, actually, this is before he listened by. He said, I want, I think I'm amazed, but I don't know what you're like. I said, well, you should listen to a couple episodes of the podcast and write back to me. He wrote back to me and said, yeah, I, I don't want to meet with you. He said, because you remind me of every youth pastor I ever had that got me into this mess. And that is part of your past. Exactly. And like I and I have that youth pastory personality. And uh he was just like, it triggers me. Like it like and it's just so interesting because he's like, I can't trust whether your ideas are good or bad because you have that kind of personality that wins people over. Well, you can always point him to me because I'm completely lacking in charisma. Oh, stop. Which might be reassuring. Might be reassuring. <laughs> Listen, <laughs> this was a really fun conversation for me. I, 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 I mean, now, now, at the beginning, you, you, before, before I turned on the microphone, I said to you like, 
are the, are all these, now that you've written a book and you get on Joe Rogan and all these podcasters, are all the conversations the same? And I was like, my this, goal is for this one, one to is, be different. This was totally unique. And man, you, you, uh, you asked some fantastic questions. You put me through my paces, dude. I'm, I'm actually, hey, by the way, I, 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 I don't see that as a threat. I see it as an opportunity. <laughs> you, you, helped, you helped me learn. Well, I, I, you've helped me learn. Um, and because, this is at the heart of my project right now because this religion versus secular thing, you know, I, I don't, I don't, religion's never going away on the, on the one hand. And there's so many wonderful people wrapped up in it and they have no choice but to be wrapped up in it. They were born into it or, or, or they, they kind of earn, they got into it in an honest fashion. And so I'm really interested in how do we extract the good things out of belief systems Yes. and, and, and identify what's, you know, rather than just throwing the baby out with the bathwater, um, Right. Because there's something really good about that religious impulse that says we should judge ideas by how they, whether or not they make people more loving and whether they make for a better society. Yeah. And, and in the book, I argue not for the abolition of the world's religions, but for the reformation. I think there's a lot of babies in the religious bathwater. And I think if you, if you gain clarity about the difference between good ideas and bad ideas, we can start to sort the wheat from the chaff and begin to create religions that really work. Look at you for a guy who didn't grow up in church, wheat and chaff. It's impressive. <laughs> Is that a biblical That's a biblical reference. reference yes. Okay. I'll be <laughs> no, no. So, 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 so in any case, this conversation and, and, and the book overall uh, has been really helpful to me. But as you raise up a child, mm-hmm. I don't want to teach my children fear religion. It's all bullshit. Run away from it. Like then you just set them up for a different kind of dogmatism and also a different kind of disillusionment. Um, Mm -hmm. I really want to teach them. This is a way of thinking about all kinds of ideas. Just use the, look at it through these lenses um, use these, use these, use these critical faculties and you'll be able to make good sense of religion. I like that. I like that. I think that's, you're serving your grandkid, your granddaughter well, I think, by helping her out that way. Okay. So, so thank you. Thank you. This was good. This was good. All right. Take care. All right. Did you like that? Did you think that was good? I thought that was pretty good. I enjoyed that conversation. And I, I think Andy Norman's onto something. The book is Mental Immunity, Infectious Ideas, Mind Parasites, and the Search for a Better, for a better Way to Think. And, uh, and I'm, glad, I'm glad that I got to share my buddy with you. And you might say, well, where's the quote? Don't you have something really dazzling to share at the end? Are, are, give me something, Bart. And the answer is no. Like I told you, it's been a tough two weeks. I've been pretty distracted. I think things are going to get better. When they do, I'll get you cool quotes. In the meantime, the truth is, is that if you don't get anything else out of this podcast, you should take a minute and uh, think about how you're going to live your life for the rest of the day. And if you do that, I have, a, I have a feeling 
that uh, it'll not only be better for you, but it'll be better for the people. And in any case, if any of this stuff works, let me know about it. BartCampola.org. I would love to hear from you. Um, and I'll see you next time on Human Ask Me. For more on BART, go to BartCampolo.org. If you like this podcast, please consider supporting it every month and get extra content for it. Go to Patreon.com slash Humanize Me. Our patrons do make the show happen. Follow us at Humanize Me Pod on Twitter and Humanize Me Podcast on Instagram. You can also join other listeners on our private Facebook group. Just search Humanize Me on Facebook. To ask your own question on the show, leave it as a voicemail at 424-291-2092. That's 424-291-2092. And finally, please review us on iTunes. It really helps. Catch you next week. Humanize Me is a production of Jux Media. Hey, you could be larger than life.